are going to be in uh, Acts 27 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. Uh, and there should be hopefully a bookmark in there that gets you close to Acts, but you're looking towards the back of the book. Um, somewhere in the 960 range, I think, is Acts. And then you can flip to chapter 27 as we are um, rapidly approaching by... Um, if, uh, if the Lord will allow us to, we will wrap up the, the book of Acts next week um, if Christ doesn't come before them. Um, as you turn in there, I'd like to thank our audiovisual team. Our AV team does a lot to make it so that we can uh, see words on the screen and so that you can hear things on the microphone so the live stream can work as well for those weeks where you can't be here with us in person. So our AV team, um, Peter and David, have done a lot to care and serve and, and love for us. So thank you guys for being here early, for taking care of slides, taking care of tech problems. Uh, we very much appreciate what you guys do. If you are interested in jumping in as part of the AV team, uh, we will train you. Even if you're like, hey, I can barely turn my computer on, that's okay. We can do step-by-step -step training. We will get you plugged in and connected. If you want to serve, if you want to uh, help and be part of that team, we would love to have you be part of that. You can use the Connect cards that are in the seatbacks around you. Circle AV team, and we'll get you uh, plugged in and connected for uh, that ministry. So um, as we begin, there is a, a question that people have been wrestling with for a long time. The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Really, it's, it's the problem of evil, right? It has confused and confounded people throughout history, right? What about karma? What about cosmic justice? Why are bad things part of this world? And it seems like a very large and difficult question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? It seems like a very large and difficult question if you don't have a grounding and foundation in God and the Bible. Because when you begin to understand the scope of influence that Adam and Eve's rebellion, how their sin poisoned everything from humans to nature, so that even those who in history that we would consider good or righteous are majorly flawed and corrupt, right? Liars and drunks and murderers and sexually immoral, like those are the good ones. Those are the ones that we hold up as the pillars of faith. And yet God uses them for his glory. God brings good through them. And when you see the goodness and justice and holiness of God and his desire to see things redeemed and renewed and restored and reconciled back to himself, put back together, the problem of evil doesn't seem like such a problem so much as it's the symptom of sin that has entered the world. But it is being ultimately and will ultimately be dealt with by God. What I think the better and maybe more difficult question for us to ask and wrestle with is the one we're going to wrestle with this morning. Why? Why is it that we can be in the will of God and still deal with hardship? Why is being in the will of God still hard? Why is it that I can be obeying God, trusting him, following a clear path he has laid out before me, and yet I still face obstacles, pain, suffering, and persecution? If I am a child of God, redeemed, restored, loved, chosen, holy generation, royal priesthood, son of God, why is it then that being in the will of God is still hard? Why don't Christians have like an invincibility bubble around us after salvation to help us avoid the hard stuff of life when we are obeying and doing the right thing? Why is being in the will of God still hard? That's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning, and I hope to give some insight into it as we look at Acts 27 and we get closer and closer to finishing up this book. So I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in. So please bow your heads and uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to gather and to be with you, to celebrate you, to worship you, to honor you, and to hear from you, to engage with you, to encounter you, encounter you in one another as we build this community stronger and stronger, deeper and deeper, encounter you as we sing songs that glorify you and make much of you, encounter you as we lift up our prayers and our thanksgivings and our concerns and our needs and our wants. 
and we encounter you as we open up your word, as we study your word and hear from you. God, we ask as we wrestle with hard texts and hard questions and just the challenges of being the lights of the world you have made us to be. God, give us clarity, give us an understanding. The things that we don't have, we ask that you would give us. The things that we can't see, we ask that you would illuminate. God, help us to have a deeper and deeper desire to know you more and more. God, you tell us that if we lack wisdom, that if we ask for it, you will give it generously. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom. We ask that you would help us to understand the complex things of this world and to respond to the darkness, respond to the questions, respond to the hard parts of this world, resting in the knowledge and truth of you. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts 27. Um, Every day is a good day to open your Bibles. Today is one of those days uh, because we're going to be jumping through this chapter. So grab your Bible. If you didn't grab it yet, go to Acts 27. Um, We're going to start in verse 1, and then we will uh, talk about it in a bit. So Acts 27, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail in the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cecilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salamanca. Coasting along, it was difficult... Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Let's stop and we'll pick it up in a bit. So it is time to go to Rome. Paul has been a prisoner of the Romans in Caesarea for over two years. He appealed to having his case be heard by Caesar, and because he is a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. So that is now happening. This chapter is a very, as you already heard, a very detailed account of part of the journey Paul goes through to trying to get to Rome. If you like boat stories and accounts like that, this is the chapter of the Bible for you. Luke spends a lot of time detailing how this travel went. It reads much like a ship's travel diary. <coughs> Excuse me. As we jump in, there are a few people I want to keep note of, I want to make mention of uh, in this account of this chapter. So who's on the ship? Who is actually doing this sailing? So we have Paul, obviously, still a prisoner, and he is accompanied by many other prisoners. We don't know what they have done or who they are or where they are coming from, but they are being sent to Rome. For many of them, whether they know it or not, they are probably being taken to Rome so that they could be used in the Colosseum for sport. This is the time of Nero where he would be feeding people to the lions for sport in the Colosseum. (coughs) Excuse me. And so that's probably what many of these prisoners are going to Rome for. We also have Julius, who is an Augustan cohort soldier. That means he answered directly to Nero. He is a high-ranking official. Of what degree and to what group or cohort, what he was overseeing, we're not totally sure, but he clearly has influence and authority, as we're going to see play out throughout this chapter. You heard in these opening verses that it says, we sailed and we embarked and we traveled. 
we being Luke means Luke was with them. Luke was part of this travel. Luke somehow has been allowed to travel with Paul. Whether he paid a ticket, paid for a ticket, or he was signed on as the ship's to serve as the ship's doctor, or even made the allowance because of Paul's health. Right? We learned long ago that Paul suffers from an eye, a condition with his eyes where he has trouble seeing, and as time goes on, we know this, the eye condition his illness gets worse and worse. And so maybe Luke was granted to be there to take care of Paul's physical needs. Yes, Paul is a prisoner, but he's still a Roman prisoner whose crimes are still pretty murky, right? We don't even know, right? The, the governor in the last chapter we talked about, the governor said, I'm sending him to Caesar, but I don't even know what charges to say I'm sending him to. Throughout the chapter, we're going to see Paul is treated much differently than what you'd expect a prisoner to be treated like. Luke also mentions that Aristarchus is there with them. He has been around in the book of Acts from time to time. In Acts 19, when the riots in Ephesus broke out, the crowd rushes into the theater to gather together, and they drag with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And then later on, when Paul is traveling from Greece to Macedonia in Acts 20, listed in the group accompanying Paul is Aristarchus. He's also mentioned in Paul's letters uh, to the Colossians in, in uh, Colossians 4, I think it is, and to uh, and in the book of Philemon. And every time Aristarchus is referred to as a fellow laborer, a co-laborer, a fellow prisoner, a co-prisoner. So Aristarchus has become a good, close travel companion of Paul. Some think that Aristarchus' ability to be on the ship is that he signed on as Paul's servant, as Paul's slave. And he wouldn't be able to do that in name only. It wouldn't be just like, okay, I'm going to sign, I'll pretend like I'm your servant. But rather, if that were the case, he would need to act and carry out those duties throughout the trip. I mean, what friends does Paul have? The kind of friends he has who would go on a trip with him like this, knowing that the end goal is to get him to another prison in Rome and to put him before Caesar, where he could very easily lose his life. And by them accompanying him, they could lose their lives as well. But they decide to be with Paul to serve and care for him as he pursues God's call on their life. And so finally in verse 3, they set sail and they are on the waters. They are sailing on a ship that set for the ports along the coast of Asia. Passenger ships back then weren't really a thing. Unless you were the upper, upper, upper echelon of people, you didn't really have passenger ships at this point. Most ships had were cargo ships. And people would buy to be able to sail along on those cargo ships, but their main goal, their main focus, was delivering their cargo along the way. Even for a situation like this, Paul is being sent by the government to the government. He's still riding a cargo ship that happens to be going that way, and that's how you traveled, is you would find a cargo ship, you would find a delivery ship that happened to be going in the general direction you wanted to be going, and you would sign on to be a passenger there. And from there, you will find in verse 6, they even have to find another ship. The one that they start on doesn't get them all the way to Rome. Uh, Julius has to find another ship to get them all the way to Italy. And that ship, again, has the previous intention of, yeah, we're going that way because we have to deliver some grain. In these first eight verses, the question I asked at the beginning, why is it hard to be, why is it still hard to be in God's will? It's already revealing itself, right? Jesus told Paul directly in Acts 23, 11, he said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul knows he is going to Rome. That is what God has planned for him. Paul has even allowed himself to stay in captivity as a prisoner to the Romans longer than he needed to, knowing God would deliver him to Rome. There is no question or mystery about what the will of God is for Paul in this situation. It is for Paul to go stand before Caesar. And with all that said, though, if we look at these first eight verses, in verse 4 it says, We sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. In verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty because the wind did not allow us to go farther. Verse 8, we were coasting along it with difficulty. Why is this trip so hard? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so slow if this is what God wants? The things slowing them down in this early parts of the trip are the winds. They haven't even hit the storms yet. Spoiler alert. The winds are against them. But who's in control of the winds? Who's in control of the winds? 
Yep, no trick questions. God is in control. Matthew 8, Jesus and the disciples are on a boat. They're in the middle of a storm, and it says they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even wind and sea obey him? God is in control of all things at all times, including the winds keeping Paul and his companions from getting to Rome in a timely manner. So what gives? I'm being obedient to God. I'm trusting his will. Why are things still so hard? Before we wrestle with that question, I want to get a fuller picture of just how hard things were for Paul. In verses 8 and 9, these early steps of travel take so much time, it tells us that they are caught at this awkward part of the year. In verse 8, it says, we see that the ship has coasted to a place called Fair Havens. And then it tells us that the fast was already over. The fast being Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. What Easter, which is April 9th, 1030, be here. It's going to be awesome. Invite your friends and family. What Easter is for us as Christians, Yom Kippur is and was for the Jewish people. And it happens around, basically it'd be around our October. Early October, um, late September, somewhere in that range. And so the weather is starting to turn and getting rough for sailing. At this time of year, in the winter months, the Mediterranean Sea can be very unpredictable. Storms over the waters kind of just happen out of nowhere. Paul, even though he is a prisoner, seems to have enough respect from the crew as he is allowed to give his input and opinion about what they should do. And while they don't actually listen to his suggestion, they, do, they don't take his suggestion, they do listen to him. He tells them, look, it's a bad idea to sail right now. We should just harbor here in Fair Havens. That's a nice name of a town. And the ship, we can post the ship up in the harbor and just wait out these winter months here. Now, Paul is not a professional sailor, but he knew and had experience enough. He has been traveling for a long, long time. And in 2 Corinthians 11, which was written um, prior to this account in Acts 27, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us by this point in Paul's life, by Acts 27, Paul has already been part of three shipwrecks. So he knows intimately what it means to sail at inopportune times and to make bad decisions on the sea. He has been shipwrecked three different times. Paul's warning in verse 10 is that if they continue, there will be much loss of cargo, of ship, and possibly even of their lives. After taking in all of what Paul has to say, as well as what the sailors have to say, while he isn't the captain of the ship, the centurion Julius, because he works directly for Nero, he was kind to Paul. He gave Paul the chance to go, uh, go ashore and see some of his friends. And so he has an affinity for Paul, and he hears from Paul, but then he hears from the sailors, and he took the opinion of the professional sailors over Paul's. Kind of makes sense. The sailors decide the harbor in Fair Havens was not suitable to spend the winter in. This is partially because the way that harbor was positioned on the bay, it was exposed to the winds and the tumult of the sea from multiple angles and didn't have clear safety. The cargo aboard the ship needed to be protected. The, the captain and the crew make their money, make their living over being able to deliver this cargo, and they want it to be safe. Along with that, Fair Havens is a tiny little harbor town. The crew of the ship were not excited to spend months on end in this tiny town with nothing to do. Instead, they say, let's go to Phoenix near Crete. It's only about 40 miles up the coast. It's a bigger, better harbor. If we got to hold up for the winter, we might as well do it there. They basically say, look, we're the professionals here. It's not that far. We can make it. It seems like their pride and ego took over, and they decided they're going to sail for Phoenix in spite of the weather. You ever have someone give you advice or instruction, and you decide to not agree with them, and then it just blows up in your face? I know you guys, that doesn't happen to you. It's happened to me a couple of times. Um, in high school, uh, I was part of a swim team, and the end of the season was coming up. We had to, uh, and so as we got to the championship meet, we all the guys were shaving our heads. So... At swim practice, we all shaved our heads. We all took it down to like, I don't know, like a, like a zero, on like no clipper, right? But there's still a little bit of hair on my head. So I get home and uh, I told my dad, like, hey, we gotta we gotta shave this down. This little peach fuzz that's on my head, we gotta shave it down. My dad said, all right, just wait. I'll help you. Let me take care of some other stuff. I did not wait and did not let him help me. So 
I put some shaving cream on my head and took his old plastic Bic razor um, and, and just started to go to town on my head and proceeded to just gouge the middle of my head. Like blood is dripping down the side of my head. And my dad walks in to the bathroom and just, just shocked at what are you doing? And so uh, he helps me finish up. But then for weeks on end, I had this, this nice big scratch mark up gouge out of the top of my head because I just didn't have any patience and thought, what's so hard about this? I could do it myself. Um, sometimes when someone gives you advice, when someone tells you that they want to help you, when someone wants to be a helpful and give you some instruction, listen to them. This crew didn't want to listen to Paul. They thought they knew better. And because of that, things are about to go very, very poorly for them. Verse 13 of chapter 27, it says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. As soon as the south wind blew gently, the crew assumed, okay, see, we were right. We're going to get this nice south wind that's going to push us to Phoenix. It's like 40 miles. It's not that far. This is a good sign. This validates our decision. We're going to go. Just because something is easy doesn't mean it's from God. And just because something is hard doesn't mean it isn't from God. Just as quick as this gentle wind blew, the wind changes in the complete direction and the conditions get so bad that the ship can't even face the wind and rather they have to basically just let the wind take them wherever they want to go. They have no longer have basically have control of the ship. They can't go where they want to and they go against the course they want to go. They are basically having to sail in the opposite direction because the wind is so strong. Again, we see in verse 16, they are with difficulty, they are progressing along. The storm has gotten so bad that the crew had to add supports to the timbers of the ship, to the structure of the ship. You ever drive um, You ever drive and you get to a red light and the car in front of you has the bungee cord hanging like close to keep the trunk closed? Or like to keep the bumper up or the real special ones where they're doing both and like this car is held together by bungee cords? Or maybe you drove that car, some of you? That's basically what's happened. They take some straps and they have to strap the, sh the ship down so that it would support, so it would be able to go through this storm and not fall apart. The crew begins to fear that they'd be stuck on the Citrus, which was a major sandbank that had, was a notorious place that would wreck and destroy ships. It was one of the biggest hazards of sailing the Mediterranean Sea was you had to avoid the Citrus. Basically, they called them the Citrus Islands. That's how big these sandbars were. It's an easy way to get stuck. The boat could get stuck there, get lodged, and you're stuck in the middle of the sea and basically stuck and left for dead there. Because of their concern for the potential danger, they basically just had to go with the wind and give up on the possibility of navigating through this storm. Right? You ever heard the phrase, if you can't beat them, join them? For these sailors, it was, if you can't beat the storm, join it and hope it doesn't throw you into some rocks. They were kind of at the storm's mercy. Things are getting so bad that it says the next day they start losing some of the cargo. They start tossing some of the cargo overboard to gain control of the ship to make it lighter so it's not so heavy in the water. Now again, the ship's main point, its main purpose for existence is to deliver grain. The livelihood of the captain and crew depends on the delivering of this cargo. So for them to decide to throw it overboard reveals the desperation of the situation. Verse 19, things don't get better on the third day. They have to now start getting rid of all of the equipment other than what was the bare essentials to sail. They start getting rid of extra sails. They can start getting rid of extra pieces, whatever they can to lighten the load. They have launched into the ocean the things that would make them money. And then they have launched most of the equipment needed to get them to a place to try and make all of the stops necessary. Gone is the hope and plan of trying to make deliveries and land at ports. Now it is about, we need to survive. Verse 20 says, the storm does not let up. No sun, no stars, no moon, just clouds. Clouds and rain and waves and wind. Their source of income was dwindled. Much of their tools are gone. Their source of navigation, the sun and moon and stars, was gone. They were being completely thrown around by the elements. 
Hope has been on the decline with every passing hour, and now days of days of being beaten down, the morale of the people, it says in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This continues on for 11 more days. By day three, all hope was abandoned. And then for 11 more days of this continues. The crew is exhausted and overwhelmed. So defeated by the situation, we see in verse 21, they haven't even eaten in days. You ever get to that kind of place? So overwhelmed and inundated and overloaded by life that you just stop taking care of yourself? Where even eating seems like a challenge or something you just forget to do because you are so consumed with everything else weighing you down. Storms and chaos and deadlines and responsibilities and relationships and thoughts and feelings and decisions and expectations and failures pile up one after another. And it seems like just taking another step is too much, let alone going to microwave some mac and cheese for yourself. In the midst of this dreary situation, Paul stands among the men and he speaks a word of hope. It says in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Men, you should have listened to me. Even Paul isn't above a good I told you so. Actually, though, I don't, I don't know how much. I mean, it's probably a little bit of I told you so. But more so, I think what he's saying is, look, I was right before. And you should have listened to me then. So listen to me now and actually believe what I have to say. He said in verse 22, take heart. Be strong. Have courage. Because there will be no loss of life. We will all survive. The ship won't survive. But we will. How do I know this? And he tells them he heard from an angel. And what does that angel say in verse 23? The angel starts with, do not be afraid, Paul. Paul knew the promise of Jesus that he would get to Rome. He knew he was pursuing the will of God. But even Paul was starting to have some doubts. Even Paul was starting to have some worries and some fear as this storm raged on. You don't need to tell someone, don't be afraid, unless they are afraid. Paul was afraid of the situation, and the angel reassures him of his need to go before Caesar. Paul is not chastised or belittled or scolded by the angel for having fear and worry and some doubt. He is strengthened and encouraged. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to have worry. It's okay to have doubt. Read the Psalms. How many times does David and the other psalmists say, God, where are you? God, please don't turn your face from me. God, please listen to me. God, I can't see you. God, I don't know what you're doing. Those are valid and good prayers to pray. You're going to have fear. You're going to have worry. You're going to have doubts. You're going to, at times, forget just how good God is. Now, we don't want it to happen, but it happens. And when it happens, we can still go to God and find comfort and help and security. The angel tells Paul, not only are you going to get to Rome, Paul, but all these men you have been praying for this whole time, God has granted that they will survive this too. The angel told Paul, the ship, those you have, those in the ship have been granted to you. Meaning, Paul, we know, I know you've been praying for them. In the midst of all of this, Paul has been praying not only for his own safety and well-being, not only for that of Luke and Aristarchus, but the whole crew, Christian and non-Christian alike, even his captor Julius. James 5.16 tells us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Christian, do not underestimate or ignore or minimize the power and ability and authority you as a Christian have in being able to go to the Father, not only on your behalf, but on behalf of others. That's what Paul did throughout this trip. 
And God granted safety and protection for all these people because of Paul's faithfulness to lift them up in prayer. Verse 25, Paul ends declaring to this crew, I have faith God will do what he said, but we do need to get to an island. We do need to get to land. Now Paul could say this because he knew. He knew what God had done in the past. He knew what God had done in his own life. He knew what God keep, that God keeps his promises, not just as an abstract concept of, I've heard God keeps his promises, but Paul had experienced it firsthand. Take heart. Have faith. If you know God keeps his promises, if you've experienced God keeping his promises, then you know he's going to continue to keep his promises. Paul needed to share this faith with the crew because things continued to be difficult. Verse 27, it says, It's been 14 days, two weeks, of no sun, no stars, no moon, nothing but rain and wind and waves and hard sailing. It has been exhausted. Everyone is physically, emotionally, mentally spent. It says in verse 27, it's now midnight. But some of the crew starts to hear something. They start to hear the waves crashing on the rocks. They suspect they're near land because they hear it. They can't see it, but they hear it. And so the crew starts to take measurements. They start to see how deep the water is, and they're seeing it get deeper or get shallower and shallower, meaning they know they're getting closer and closer to land, but they can't see anything. And so to make sure that they don't crash into some unseen rocks, they put down anchors to hold till daybreak. That way they can at least see where they're going. And it says they put down these anchors, and as that happened, they clung to the only thing they had left, prayer for daybreak. They put their four anchors down, everything they had left to weigh the ship down, to keep it as best in place as they could, and they just prayed for daybreak to come. But this potential of land, this potential of getting off this ship and onto, onto some dry wet ground, it wasn't enough for some people. In verse 30, it says, um, As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Even though the whole crew was assured by Paul that God would protect them, there were some that weren't trusting the promise. It says a group began lowering a boat, lowering a dinghy into the sea, giving a bogus reason that we're going to put some more anchors out, but really they're just looking to escape. See, it's one thing to hear the promises of God, to, to even see and hear the confidence of another person that what they have in God. But to have it for yourself, that's another thing entirely. See, I can pray for you, and I do. And I can open the word with you, but I can't make you believe. I can't will you into becoming a Christian, into growing deeper and deeper in your faith. At times, I wish I could. There are people in my life who I love deeply, who I wish I had the ability to do something that only the Holy Spirit can do. It's your decision as to whether or not you put your trust and belief in Jesus Christ and for his sacrifice of dying on the cross for your sins. I can't do it for you. No one else can do it for you. Some of the sailors heard this, but they didn't want to believe it for themselves. They believed they were better off on their own and decided under false pretenses, we're going to make a break for it. Paul finds out about this plan and tells Julius, if the crew leaves, we cannot be saved. But Paul, you already told us everyone's going to survive. Everyone will be saved. So what's the deal? Sometimes God makes promises, and those promises involve man's action. If the ship is short-handed sailors... They won't be able to sail the boat safely. Simple logic, right? They need X amount of sailors to rig the boat. If the crew stays together, they will be safe. But if they go rogue and do what they want, the promise will not be held, upheld. Thinking back to the Old Testament, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child. All you need to do is wait and trust me, and I will take care of this, God tells them. But they try and fix it themselves and only make matters worse. When the Israelites were in Egypt, the tenth, the tenth plague comes, and it's the, the angel of death, right? God is going to sweep through Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family. Unless, what? They would take the blood of a lamb and paint it on their doorpost. 
So if you didn't paint the blood on your doorpost, you were in trouble. See, God will make promises that involve us taking action and responding. The centurion Julius has learned his lesson about not listening to Paul, and he cuts the rope, letting the dinghy drift away. Maybe not the wisest decision, because they are still in the middle of a storm, and they're going to need to get to land. But this way, they make sure nobody's getting out of here. Verse 33, it finally says, day breaks. There is sunlight. Land is in sight, and Paul again encourages his shipmates. He says, look, we have some work still to do to get to safety. Crew, I know you're tired. I know you're spent. Take some food. Get strong. Because remember, we are in this together. And not a hair is going to perish on your heads. You will be safe. Verse 35. It says, when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. That verse is, the phrasing of verse 35 just echoes a lot of the words of communion. It would seem Paul had a communion meal, or Luke at least has a communion meal in mind at this time, at least for himself and the Christians on board. But notice he didn't take it and say, okay, we're going to have this special communion meal off to the side in the corner. He did these things in the presence of all. Paul was going to worship God regardless of the situation and regardless of who was around. There are some people who think that our physical bodies, that the physical and spiritual are separate. Right? Our physical bodies are bad and evil and broken, and the spiritual part of us, that's good. Our soul, that's the good and pure part of us. But we see over and over throughout Scripture that God cares about both our physical and our spiritual health and well-being. And so, like a toddler in the middle of the day, after getting some food in them, the crew is much less cranky. They're a lot happier and ready to listen. They get rid of the rest of the wheat. Again, showing the desperation, trying to make the ship as light as possible so they can run it up on the sand of this land that they see ahead of them. They were out of options, so they ditched the rest of the prophet, and they ditched the anchors. Anything they didn't need went into the water. And so verse 39, it says, Day finally comes, and while no one recognized the land that they saw, they saw a bay, they saw a beach, and they said, All right, well, let's make a plan, and let's get this ship over onto that, onto that beach. Later on, we find out in, verse, in chapter 28, this land is called Malta. We'll talk about that next week. And so they make a run on it. And maybe finally, after spending this two weeks in the storm, maybe finally, after people have listened and they got some food, maybe finally this is going to work out. Maybe finally they're going to get a little bit of help. Does anybody know Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law is anything that can go wrong will go wrong. It says in verse 41, But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The ship hits a reef. They couldn't see it. And so the bow, the front of the boat, gets stuck, and the stern, the back of the boat, which has already endured much damage from being stuck in the storm for two weeks, gets beaten by the waves, and it is breaking apart at this point. As all of this is happening, the soldiers decide, well, everything's in chaos right now. I think what we need to do is kill all these prisoners. Paul wasn't the only prisoner on board. There was a group of them. This way, if we kill all the prisoners now, before this boat falls apart, they can't swim away, they can't try and escape us. Because under Roman law, and we've seen this play out in Acts many chapters ago, under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped a soldier in charge of them, that soldier would be charged by the death penalty for letting the prisoner go free. So the guards are looking out for themselves once again, and they want to take care of the prisoners. But it says Julius the centurion wants to save Paul. He makes sure this doesn't happen. The centurion clearly has favored Paul throughout this whole journey. Everyone is ordered to swim or float their way to land. Whatever you got to do to get up onto that beach. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land is how chapter 27 closes. Exactly what God told Paul would happen did. The ship and the cargo were lost to the sea. But not a person on the ship lost their life. God's word never fails. 
Why is it being why is being in God's will still hard? Sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of hard circumstances as a result of our own poor decision making. There are consequences to our actions, but that's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about when you're I'm doing the right thing, I'm obeying, and still wave after wave is knocking me around. Well, for one thing, do not ignore the very real existence of Satan. He is a liar and a destroyer. His whole goal is to ruin and corrupt and hurt and attack those who would follow Jesus. So if you are following Jesus, if you are pursuing him and in line with his will, expect opposition, expect obstacles, expect Satan to attack. But in that expectation, remember that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God and Satan are not yin and yang. They are not two sides of the same coin balancing each other out. God is in control of all things at all times. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and eternal. Satan is not. He is subject to what God allows. So trust and rest in who God is as you weather these storms. But even if what you are experiencing is from Satan, why wouldn't God just say, that's enough. Stop. Hands off. Two weeks at sea in the midst of a storm seems a bit excessive, God. So why is being in God's will still hard? There's purpose. Because it can strengthen our faith. We are not done learning and growing and maturing and trusting. We will not arrive at total sanctification. That's a church word for becoming Christ-like. Until we meet Christ. Which means our entire lives are a work in progress. Paul himself in these last few chapters, we've looked at over the last few weeks, we've needed, he's needed Jesus to directly tell him, have courage, be strong, have faith. I'm with you. I've got you. You're going to get to Rome. Just hold on. Paul doubted. Paul worried. Paul got scared. Going through this, Paul was strengthened and reminded of the power and providence and promises of God. Obedience to God does not mean easy going. Obedience is good and it's necessary. It is a step towards God making us more and more into the image and likeness he has for us, but it does not equate to an easy life. I said things like this can strengthen our faith. They can pull us closer and closer to Christ. But it's not a guarantee. There are some who get hit with adversity, especially in the midst of obeying God, especially when I feel like I'm doing the right thing, and then I get hit with this wave. And rather than allow these things to drive them to God, they use it for as a reason to run away from God, to blame him or ignore him and give up on him and his people. When, not if, but when, we encounter hard circumstances, catastrophes, and hardship, or even just the consequences of our own sin, we have two options. We can run and hide away from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, or we can run toward him in repentance, run toward him in our distress and say, God, I don't know what's going on, help, and we can find rest and safety in him. The mark of the maturing Christian is the one who sees the waves and feels the wind and can still say, I trust you, God. You know what's best for me, and you are with me. And as you respond that way, what a testimony that is to other people. And that's another reason why sometimes the will of God is hard, so that our endurance of hardship is a testimony to others. We are saved from the wrath of God towards sin to be a blessing to other people. Your endurance of the hard and the messy and the broken and the unexpected obstacles God can and will use to glorify himself through you and others. It said in verse 37, there were 276 people on this ship. i got to believe some of them came to Christ by the end of it. And I'm sure they were impressed by Paul's steadfast faith. And I'm sure they were encouraged by his boldness because time and time again, he was the one who encouraged. He was the one to help and be a difference maker throughout this journey. What you are going through, what you have gone through, these things, yes, they are for you to learn and grow, but it's also for other people. People you don't even know, people you might not even ever meet directly. Remember when Jesus said, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can bear no fruit. When an apple tree gives an apple, it's not giving an apple and letting that produce, produce that fruit to benefit itself. That apple benefits others. When we bear fruit, it's not to bear fruit to just benefit ourselves, it's to benefit others. We go through the hard, we go through the exhausting and the confusing, clinging to God, clinging to his word, clinging to our faith. And when we come through it, we live our lives and someone else in a similar storm, in a similar hardship, they have the ability to hear about what we have been through. We have the chance to share with them and let them know, look, you're not alone. You're not the first person who's gone through this. You're not the last person to go through this. And we can let them know this is not the end of your story. God doesn't waste time, his or ours, which means everything you experience, the good and the bad, even at times, especially the bad and the hard, it has value and worth and importance for you and for somebody else. Obedience and following God's will does not guarantee you safety and wealth and an easy life. If anything, most of the time, it's going to lead you into some hard times and hard, murky waters. When those times come, whether it is out of obedience or rebellion, trust in God. Trust who he is. Trust his character. Trust how he has revealed himself to be, who he has revealed himself to be in his word and in your life. Trust who he has revealed himself to be through his son, Jesus. And to know that, you got to know God's word. You have to actually get in. Like we said about the power of prayer earlier, we take for granted the life spring of security found in the word of God. The hope and help and healing found in the word of God. It is a gift and blessing to us. Do we treat it that way? Read it. Know it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Chew on it over and over. Let it bounce around in your head and heart. Let it gather itself in you. Let it guide and direct and lead you. And as you do that, you get to do it as part of a community of believers, part of the gift that is the church. You have a community to lean on, to trust and confide in and walk with. Paul was stuck on this ship, but he was stuck and he had friends with him. He had Luke, he had Aristarchus. He had guys he could be open and honest with and say, you know what, I'm tired, I'm worried, I'm scared, and I need your friendship and I need your prayers. You aren't alone. God promised you, if you are his, if you have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you even till the end of the age. That can be you today right now if it hasn't been. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, that can start today by admitting your need for a Savior, believing Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross for your sins in your place and choose for him to be your Lord and Savior. As Christians, we want to obey. We want to walk with God in closer relationship with him. We want to make decisions and live in such a way that glorify him and are in line with his will. Not because it makes things easy, not because it makes things clearer or simpler, but because we love God, because we trust God, because we, when we obey him, we are exactly where he wants us to be, where it is best for us to be, where he is growing us, where he is shaping us and sharpening us because using us to help others. And when we are fully relying on him, him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that's who he is. That's what he does. He calls us and he says, I have a plan for you. I have purpose for you. All of that stuff you walked through, every storm you rode through, I got a purpose and a plan for it. Let me show you. That's who he is. That's why we still endure hardships, even when we're obeying, so that he may be glorified in and through us. Oh my, may we be a people who respond to him with thanksgiving and trust and dependence on him in all of our seasons, in all of our situations. And when the winds blow and the waves crash, remember he is with you and he's for you. You can use this storm. He will use this storm for your good and his glory. Let's pray. so many times where we feel overwhelmed by darkness where we know we are walking in step with you we know we are with you 
and you are with us, and yet still we find ourselves in hard places, dark places, overwhelming places, and it con is confusing and troubling and makes us doubt and makes us question things. God, in those times, in those seasons, help us. Lord, we ask that you would remind us your ways are better than our ways. Your ways are higher than our ways. You, you, have, you see beyond just the immediate right now of what we are in. And you see how these things matter in your big picture and how these things matter to what you are doing and who you are making us to be and how you are calling us to serve and love others. God, we know that doesn't make it easier. We know there will be times we walk through and have to ride through some storms. So God, I pray that you would give us a hunger and thirst to know you deeper, to know your word, to know your presence in us and with us, so that when those storms come, God, we would be prepared to cling to you, prepared to trust in you, prepared to rest in you, knowing that you are with us, that you're not going to leave us to our own devices, that you're not going to just leave us to wander. God, give us a hunger and thirst. Give us a renewed desire to know you deeper, to not be satisfied with our relationship with you being, this is how it is and it's fine, but to always want more, to always want to know more of you, to always want to hear from you more, to always want to be able to connect with you more. God, we pray that we would experience and feel more and more of you with us. God, thank you for giving us accounts like this, giving us and reminding us that there is purpose to what we go through. That this life is not random chaos and happenstance, but this is divinely directed by you. That you have a purpose and plan for everything we experience. There are no coincidences. Help us to remember that. Help us to trust that and actually live like we believe that. And Lord, when those opportunities come, when those relationships show up, when those interactions show up, where we can be a blessing to others, help us, God, to know and to see it and to step into it and to trust you're going to give us the words to say and the things to do. God, we thank you for being the one who is in control of all things at all times, for reminding us that there is nothing random, that you have a purpose to all of this, that while it doesn't make the storms any less stormy, it does help us to remember to look toward you. You have made us to be the lights in the darkness. Help us to shine those lights bright. We pray these things because of you, because you're good and awesome at all times. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.